0: Thank you Adam and choir and orchestra. It's great to have choir back up on Sunday morning and orchestra. I don't want to come to Lakeview if we didn't have preaching just for the singing. Amen. Let another praise thee and not thine own lips. We love you, Adam. (laughs) The date was January 1st, 1929. The Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California was the scene. It is described as the greatest blunder in the history of college football. None of us were alive then to know about it, but we've read about it in sports history. University of California at Berkeley Bears were playing the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets in the Rose Bowl and on a particular play Georgia Tech running back Stumpy Thompson fumbled the ball and Cal Berkeley defensive player Roy Regals scooped up the fumble And the confusion turned and ran to the wrong goal line. Sixty-nine yards he ran. As it turned out, that play resulted in Cal Berkeley losing the game by a score of eight to seven. For the rest of his life, Roy Regals was known by the moniker Wrong Way Roy. Well, he was sincere in thinking he was about to score for his team, but he was sincerely wrong. But we shouldn't be too harsh on Roy Regals, at least I shouldn't be, I've done things that stupid. Some years ago I boarded a Southwest Airlines flight in Birmingham to go to Dallas. My flight plan was to fly to New Orleans, change planes, get on a plane in New Orleans, and fly to Dallas. As you know, if you've flown Southwest Airlines, they don't have a signed seat. You just first one on, you get whatever you can find. And so I was walking down the center aisle of this 727 plane, and I heard someone say, Brother Al. And I looked and there was a former Lakeview member He was a student during his Auburn University days, came to Lakeview. He was now in the Navy. And so the seat across the aisle, across from him, was vacant. So I sat in the seat next to this student and engaged him in conversation. And the plane took off for New Orleans. We chatted the whole way. We landed in New Orleans. I was supposed to get off. I didn't. I kept talking to this former Lakeview member. And so we took off and I'm just chatting away thinking I'm on my way to Dallas. In about 30 or 40 minutes into the flight, the captain said we're about to make our descent into Houston Hobby Airport. And I thought, oh my soul. I don't want to go to Houston, I want to go to Dallas. I was sincere, but I was at the wrong destination." Now, some ways seem to be right, but in reality lead to the wrong destination. Roy Regals got it wrong when he raced toward the wrong goal line, and your pastor got it wrong when he didn't go to the right city, when he went to Houston instead of Dallas. That's a minor matter for me, perhaps not quite as minor for Roy Regals, but nevertheless, in comparison, in the light of eternity, those are very minor matters. For the wrong destination for eternity is no minor matter. And if you miss the way to God, and if you miss the way to heaven, there is no second chance. None. Now some see the road to God uh, like climbing a mountain, perhaps you like I have liked to hike in the Smoky Mountains and I've hiked Mount Lacan a couple of times. If you want to hike to the summit of Mount Lacan there in the heart of the Smoky Mountains you have uh, several options you can go to the Alam Cave Trail or you can take a longer trail but not quite as steep, the boulevard, or you can go on the Bullhead Trail or the Rainbow Falls Trail or the Trillium Gap Trail. There are many ways to get to the summit of Mount Leconte. Some people see God and heaven like that. There are many ways to God. And some go one way, and some go another way, and it doesn't matter what your worldview is, and it doesn't really matter what your religion is, as long as you make it to the summit and there you encounter the Lord. Well, Solomon spoke to this matter in the book of Proverbs. On Sunday mornings, we are in the book of Proverbs, and uh, I want you to think with me this morning about this subject, life or death, the choice is yours. And there are two proverbs I want us to think about. They are contrasting proverbs. And they paint that contrast between the way of life and the way of death. Now, let me read them to you. Uh, First, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but at the end, it leads to death. And then chapter 12, verse 28. In the way of the righteous, uh, in the way of righteousness, there is life. Along that path is immortality, and so we see this contrast uh, between the way of life and the way of death. And uh, Solomon is saying, you have a choice to make. If you choose to go one way, the end result is death and destruction. However, if you choose to go in another direction, the end result is life. Life everlasting. But the choice is yours. And every one of us gathered in this room on this Resurrection Day worship celebration have a choice to make as to which direction we will go with our lives. So first, Proverbs 14, 12 And then next, Proverbs 12, 28. But first think with me about the ways which seem right which lead to death. There are ways which seem right to a man, to a woman. But if you pursue those ways, those ways ultimately result in death. Look at it again in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to a man. It looks right. It seems right, but in the end it leads to death. Now, we see the very same verse in chapter 26, Proverbs, excuse me, not 26, Proverbs uh, 16. Look in chapter 16, verse 25. Identical proverb. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Why is it listed twice? Just to underline. By means of repetition, how important it is that we grasp the wisdom found in this proverb. So, what are some ways which appear to be right, at least to large numbers of people, but in the end, are erroneous? And if pursued to its logical end, will result in death, even eternal death. Well, as you may or may not know, the largest religious body in all the world is Christianity. Uh, but uh, there are other rel- world religions that have a worldview about how you can achieve whatever they think of as salvation that have vast numbers of followers who I would suggest this morning are deceived. Let's think about Islam. Islam is the second largest world religion, 1,506,000,000 people espouse this Islamic religion. Now they are scattered all around the world but the largest concentration of followers of uh, the Islamic religion live in what is known as the 1040 window, it is that part of the world between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude that begins and in North Africa, it extends all the way through the Middle East, all the way to Southeast Asia. Islam was founded by the prophet Muhammad in 570 A.D. And according to the Islamic religion, the way of salvation is to embrace the five pillars of Islam. They are, number one, confession. The confession is there's no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, number two, to pray five times every day. If you ever travel in the Muslim world, five times in the course of a day, you'll hear the the call to prayer go out across the city, and uh, Muslims pause and bow down toward Mecca and pray. The third pillar of Islam is alms for the poor. A fourth pillar is during the month of Ramadan that you fast from sun up to sundown. down. And then the fifth pillar of Islam is, sometime in the course of your life, make a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And some of the most disciplined, devoted, religiously zealot people practice this religion. And in its essence, this is salvation by good works. So that's the second largest world religion. The third largest world religion is Hinduism, 996 million people on planet earth uh, practice Hindu religion. Uh, It has no founder, it has no creed. Hindu has 330 million individual gods. And uh, it's located primarily in South Asia, primarily in India and uh, in Nepal, though A form of Hinduism in the form of the New Age movement has certainly penetrated the Western world. And Hindus believe in reincarnation, and if you have bad karma, you come back in a a lesser life. If you have good karma, you come back in a better life. And they're just trying to go from, from one reincarnation to another to work off the bad karma. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is one of many incarnations. There are many others. But again, like Islam, the Hindu religion is characterized by the doing of some type of good works in order to gain salvation. Then the fourth largest world religion would be Buddhism. 620 million adherents of the Buddhist religion. It is the fourth largest. It's found primarily in Southeast Asia. And in East Asia, the founder, known as the Buddha, who lived primarily in North India in the 6th century B.C., and his movement was a reform movement within Hinduism. And practicing Buddhists, Buddhists believe in the four noble truths. Here they are. Number one, suffering is inevitable. Two, the cause of suffering is desire. Three, the cure of suffering is overcoming selfish desire. Four, the way to overcome desire is the eightfold path. And the Eightfold Path has to do with right understanding, right thought, right speech, right actions, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. But again, like Muslims and like Hindus, it is a works-based salvation. Apparently it seems right. To multiple hundreds of millions of Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims seems right just as Solomon said in Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way that seems right to a man but in the end in the end it results in death now these men and women they are sincere in their religious practice Sometimes they put Christians to shame in their zeal. But those of us who are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and who know the clear teaching of Holy Scripture, we know that it is not enough to be sincere in our religious practice. But our religious faith must be placed in a true object. And that true object is the Lord Jesus Christ. The sinless Son of God sent from heaven into this world to go to a cross and there to suffer and bleed and die, to be laid in a borrowed tomb and to be raised on the third day, that all who trust in him might be reconciled to God and be declared righteous in the sight of God. And yet, in these United States of America, there is there is a subtle undermining of the clear teaching of sal- of salvation found in the scripture which is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. there's uh, among many, God forbid I hope there are not many at Lakeview but there's among many a misplaced moralism as a substitute for the clear teaching of salvation by grace through faith in Christ you, you hear it in the media you hear it on the talk shows it, it's 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 just everywhere and uh, it, it basically is something like this we're not really bad people God understands and everybody's going to be okay on judgment day um uh, There's a term for that coined by uh, Professor Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, who wrote a book in 2005 with this title, Soul-Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And they call it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning we just seek right relationship with God by living a clean, moral life as we define our own morality. Uh, therapeutic meaning it's not so much concerned about our sin and our guilt as it is about making us happy. And in deism, God is a distant God and uh, he's not going to intervene in our lives unless we go looking for him and ask him to come and help us out of a tight. So here are the five tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism as found in the book by Smith and Denton. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world over human life on earth. There's a belief in a creator God. God created the world and human life. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. And we're all good except maybe Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot, some of those. It's like this. I'm not a bad person. i pay my taxes. I vote. I go to church sometimes. I'm a good neighbor. I give to the United Way. Uh, I'm basically a good person. I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a prostitute. I'm a good person. And surely God grades on a curve... And therefore, when the Day of Judgment comes, if there is such a thing as the Day of Judgment, I I think my odds are pretty good. Now, that idea is endemic across the United States of America. And those of us who know the Bible, we know that is foreign to Holy Scripture. Think with me like this. Everybody, look up at the ceiling. I don't get your blinded by the lights. They're pretty bright on this platform. But look up at the ceiling. And let's let the ceiling be God. And of course, we'd have to admit God is high and lifted up. I mean, that's a lot higher than any of us are. You folks in the balcony, you're closer. But in order to know God, you've got to reach up and touch the ceiling, which stands for God. Well, we're all at a disadvantage. You say, "Well, I'm better than others." Well, maybe not. I've asked Ken Chance and Nathan Holden to come help me. Come on up, men. <laughs> Y'all know where this is going, don't you? Stand back to back. Yeah, it's got more to head on you, Kenneth. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe about two feet. I just stand there. Now, your goal is to, to reach out and, on your own efforts. Just touch God. So don't you just go ahead and reach out and touch God. Oh, Nathan, you're way ahead of Kenneth. You're way ahead of Kenneth. But you're a long way from God. You get the point? Y'all can have a seat. Thank you. It doesn't matter how much better you are than somebody else. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Yes, you may be better than the persons who are in the county jail or on Skid Road morally, but all of us are far, far separated from God. That's what Solomon is warning against here. Look at it again, Proverbs chapter 14. I want to rivet this verse in your heart. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And if you're counting on your good moral life to get you to heaven, you have seriously misjudged the character of God, the holiness of God, and the way of salvation. I want to contrast that now, number two, with the way of righteousness that leads to life. Yes, there's a way that seems right to a man, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or some other Christian worldview or the moralism, the, ther- the moralistic therapeutic uh, deism which grips our land, but it's wrong. But here's the way to righteousness look in chapter 12, verse 28. In the way of righteousness, there is life. Along that path is immortality. Two key words here in verse 28 righteousness and life, and they cannot be separated. If you want to have life that is truly life, if you want to experience abundant life that Jesus talks about in John chapter 10, verse 10, if you want to experience the eternal life that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, then it must be directly connected to righteousness. So here we have it. Look at it again. In the way of the righteousness, there is life. Righteousness is right standing with God. And life is the gift of God, which God bestows to all of those whom He has made righteous. Romans chapter 3 makes it quite clear that all of us have sinned against God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one of us who is righteous before God. We stand before the Lord God of heaven and earth, guilty as charged. We've rebelled against God. We've chosen to go our own way. And yet, those who come to Christ in repentance and faith receive the gift of God, eternal life and righteousness. I want you to go with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, verse 17, 18, and 19. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, 18, and 19. And here Paul is discussing the whole matter of salvation and, and right standing with God and being reconciled to God. And in verse 17 we read, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. Let me just pause right there and say those who say that the only thing that matters is being good and fair and nice, Christians aren't just nice people. Hopefully they are nice. Christians are new people. Look at it again. If anyone is in Christ, that is, if if any man or woman or child has a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a new creation. You have... Life in Christ. Verse 18, all this is from God. It is the initiative comes from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We were alienated from Christ by our sins, but we've been reconciled to him through his death on the cross and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins, against them there you have it salvation is not you or I or anyone else doing the best he or she can to gain right standing with God it's not our good works salvation is the work of God in Christ who came to the cross suffered and bled and died on the cross to pay the sin debt that you and I could never pay and then emerging from the tomb triumphant on the third day That is the gospel, and that is what we celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday, 2021. God in Christ. I want you to see it in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the prologue to John's Gospel, we read in the first verse of chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. So, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is God God the Word. And he came in human flesh. Look in uh, John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh. That is he took on human flesh. God the Son became the God-man. And the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, God came down at Christmas time with the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem. And this child grew in, into manhood. And at age 30, he laid a shy aside the tools of his carpentry shop. And for three years, he traversed the Galilean and Judean countryside. Preaching and teaching and healing, performing miracles. But he was a threat to the establishment of his day, both the Roman establishment and the Jewish establishment. And so what happened was he was uh, betrayed by one of his own followers, Judas, and was arrested, crucified. There he shed his blood on the cross for the redemption of the human race. He suffered. And bled and died that we might be reconciled to God. His body was laid in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he emerged triumphant. The tomb is empty. In John 3:16, perhaps the most well-known verse in all of the New Testament, maybe the entire word of God, for God so loved the world that he gave us one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life what a wonderful promise that is. I want you to know today that God loves you. You don't have to be alienated from God. You don't have to be separated from God. God loves you and he has demonstrated his love for you in that he sent his son, his only begotten son into the world to die in your place, to pay your sin debt. That if you'll believe in him, you'll receive from him eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came on a rescue mission to save sinners from their sin. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him, that is in Jesus, is not condemned. If you believe in Jesus, there's no condemnation against your, against your account. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only sin. So all of us who believe, we're no longer condemned. We once were before we were in Christ, but now that we are in Christ, we're no longer condemned. But those who have not believed, you are condemned as of this very moment. But Jesus, who suffered on the cross, who was buried in a barren tomb, came alive. Look in John's Gospel, chapter, uh, chapter uh, 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11. Here's the back story. We're just gonna look in verses 25 and 26. The back story is that Jesus had very close friends in the village of Bethany, Their names were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. And Lazarus took sick. The sister sent word to Jesus, Lazarus is very, very sick. Please come. We believe you come. You'll heal him. But Jesus delayed by design, waited until after Lazarus died because Jesus wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead. And in this account in John chapter 11, we read in verse 25 and In 26, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This is our resurrection hope right here. It is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death, and because Jesus conquered death, he is the first fruits of the resurrection, and because Jesus lives, we can be very, very confident that we shall live if we are in Christ. So, those world religions that have held millions captive to their false doctrines, you would say there are many pathways to God and you go one way and somebody else goes another way and we finally just climb our way up to the mountain and there we get to the summit of the mountain. There's salvation. The Bible teaches exactly 180 degrees opposite of that. We don't climb the mountain to reach God. God came from the summit of the mountain down to earth took on human flesh. He came to live for a while among us that those who trust in him might be reconciled to God and receive the righteousness of Christ given to them, imputed to their account when they trust in him. Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is the God-man. Did Buddha ever raise anybody from the dead? No. Did Muhammad ever raise anybody from the dead? No. Did Buddha himself rise from the dead? No. Did Muhammad ever rise from the dead? No. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Indeed, he did. That's why we're here today. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ lives. Death can't live in the presence of Jesus. E. Stanley Jones was a very well-known missionary statesman of the 20th century. He wrote an autobiography entitled uh, something, The Song of Ascents, I think was the name of it. And in, the, in the, his autobiography, he tells the story of a, of a friend, not a not a, a preacher, but just a layman, a godly layman who was uh, asked by, by a family if, if, they would, if he would uh, speak or conduct the funeral for uh, the person in their family who had passed away. And as Stanley Jones gives the account, this man decided, well, he had never done a funeral, but he wanted to do it right. So he went to the New Testament to see how Jesus conducted funerals. He wanted to learn from the Master. Of course, Jesus never conducted a funeral. Uh, Jesus broke up a few funerals, but he never conducted one. The Lord Jesus Christ is unique. He is different in infinite ways above any other religious leader or any other person who ever lived. Uh, Jesus split time into B.C. and A.D. We don't date our calendar by the life of Buddha. We don't date our calendar by the life of Confucius. We don't date our calendar uh, by the life of uh, Mohammed. We date our calendar by the 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 life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one like Jesus. None. C.S. Lewis put it like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a demon Or you may fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that alternative open to us. And so we all stand at a crossroads. What are we going to do with Jesus? That, that's the question that Pontius Pilate had to ask himself when Jesus stood trial before him. Actually, it wasn't Jesus standing trial before Pilate; it was Pilate was standing trial before Jesus. Pilate asked that question, which echoes down the corridors of time, 2,000 years later. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What are you going to do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? We must choose. And what we do with Jesus determines our eternal destiny. Either heaven or hell. Do you know who ends up in hell? I'll tell you. Everyone who sincerely believes that he or she deserves heaven. That's who ends up in hell. And if you think you deserve to go to heaven apart from faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, you are sadly deluded And you'll find out in eternity how deluded you are. Do you know who ends up in heaven? Everyone who sincerely believes he or she deserves to go to hell. But says to Jesus, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And in this assembly of people today... All of us gathered in this room on this Resurrection Day morning, in this assembly of people, are two kinds of sinners. Saved sinners and lost sinners. And if you're a saved sinner, it's because Jesus saved you. Because somewhere somewhere in your past, it might have been a week ago, it might have been a decade ago, it might have been 50 or more years ago, but somewhere in your past, You came to realize that you are a guilty sinner deserving of the holy wrath of God and saw your own sinfulness and guilt and lostness and you cried out to God in heaven to have mercy on you and to save you from your sins. If that's you, then I promise you your eternity is secure in Christ. But if you've not yet trusted Jesus as your Savior, then the most important decision you ever can make and the most urgent decision you must make is to trust him, to receive him. I promise you, if you come to Jesus, he won't turn you away. For as many as received him, to them gives he the power to become the children of God. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus will save you if you humble yourself and come to him in simple, childlike faith. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing our song of decision. I'll be standing here. Other pastors will be here across the front. This is an opportunity for you To profess your faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. By your coming, said, I want Jesus to be my Savior. And I want to follow him as the Lord of my life. I did that when I was a 10-year-old child a long, long time ago. I stepped into an aisle and I met Christ. And my life has never been the same. And he flooded my soul that day with joy and peace. It passes all human understanding. And what God did for me as a fifth-grade child, God will do for you if you'll come. You say, I don't understand all I need to know. You just come and talk to one of our pastors. We'll help you. We'll take the Word of God and explain it to you. We'll show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven, that you are a child of God, that your name is in the Lamb's book of life, and that your eternal destiny in heaven is secure forever. Spirit of God speaks. You're not here by accident. God brought you here this day to hear this message, to be confronted with your need of a Savior. This is your opportunity to respond. We stand and sing together. Come while we sing.